I'm Kari Rowe, and you're listening to the Foreign Saints Podcast, a pulse check for those of us that die daily. Now, it's been a couple weeks since I've uploaded anything new, and that is because Meredith and I have spectacular news. Um, God did a lot of things in a very short amount of time, but very long story short, we are out of the apartment that we were in before, one bedroom apartment, um, and God uh, leveled us up to a three bed, two bath uh, in the same uh, town that we're in. Uh, we were looking for a bigger apartment. Uh, that didn't quite work out. My wife got a text from a friend of hers saying that they had to move up north for work situations and just had to leave the house behind. So, hey, you know, we scooped it up, you know, a week or two later and we're moved into this place. Uh, so, it, you know, took a couple of weeks um, just to focus on that and getting everything moved in and get settled um, with that. And also to get our Bible study group also settled into a new rhythm too, uh, because this podcast isn't all that I do. Uh, I also lead a Bible study group on Wednesdays. We're going through the Psalms, just exegeting verse by verse and seeing what is there for us, seeing what Jesus has for us there. It's really been a blessing um, these last couple of weeks. But we're pretty settled, uh, settled enough anyway to get back to recording. I have a new closet <laughs> to be recording uh, this in, so that's pretty cool. And this is going to be the first of an ongoing series that I'm just going to call Answering. Because um, I, like I said, I talk with a lot of people in my life, you know, online, over different social medias, um, and at work. And sometimes when you get into conversations with people, you get the feeling that the topic, <laughs> that the topic might be either too big for you or too big for the communication platform that you're using. And so I decided, well, you know, I have a podcast. Why not, um, you know, why not knock out a couple of birds with one stone, right? Um, so I figured whenever I'm in conversation with people and a topic gets to be a bit more dense than I'm comfortable giving a really well thought out answer for, I'm going to just say, hey, maybe I could make a podcast episode on it so I could have some time to dig into it and really get my mind settled on, you know, how to handle a certain situation biblically. And then I can present you um, some of my more polished thoughts and scriptural reasonings on it. And, you know, hopefully it helps for whatever that's worth. And so uh, for this episode of answering, we'll be answering a friend of mine, Rebecca. And anyone that knows me knows that I know multiple Rebecca's just check the Facebook a friends list of mine. So unless you actually are the Rebecca for whom this episode was coined for, you're not going to know uh, who I'm talking about. And that's perfectly fine, you know. Um, but to, you know, to my friend, I hope that this episode helps. So what I decided to do, because I've not done an episode like this before, though it has been something that's been on my heart to do, um, and I've had a couple of conversations that have kind of qualified for something like this. And I've got another friend of mine who's also going to get an episode like this, too, after after this one. Um, but, you know, she had a lot of we just kind of got into a discussion on 
you know, feminism and gender fluidity and God's gender identity and all sorts of things. Right. And we were having this conversation over, uh, you know, over messenger, um, you know, over Snapchat messenger, actually. Uh, so what I decided to do is with her permission to start this episode off is just read, um, is just read our conversation, uh, the relevant aspects of it anyway. Um, for a couple reasons. One, because it's just a good conversation. And two, um, one, I think it'll be edifying for two groups, for two groups of people, right? One for Christians that struggle with having these conversations, either uh, for patience reasons or because of just fear of how they'll be perceived. And secondly, for people that may have her similar question. Um, to hopefully that you're comforted to know that like God's not intimidated by your questions. Um, watch your tone, obviously. Right. But the question itself is always perfectly fine to ask if you've got a heart that's open and willing to reason. Right. So the conversation started off. She sent me two links from this website called Junia Project. Um, a part one and a part two of was the Bible written only for men parts one and part two. And so she starts the conversation off saying, I thought these were an interesting read. I resonate with this a lot and wondered if you'd be interested in giving them a read. I don't know how you feel about feminism in relation to religion, but this is definitely stuff I've been chewing on metaphorically. The title is off putting and I don't feel it accurately represents the actual composition of the blog. Just wanted to point that out. I respond, yeah, I just read both articles and a third one on her blog to get a better sense of her. Oh, I didn't see a third one. Where? Oh, sorry. On double check, not the same author, but it was that same website, Junia Project. But yeah, I've heard her position before and I totally get how she comes to that conclusion. I think, though, that the use of the word brother is actually intended to make the exact opposite point than her conclusion. So a bit of context here, right? The articles that she had sent me, um, was the Bible written only for men, was discussing a, a translation, quote unquote, controversy. Um, depending on what translation, what English translation you read, it's going to look a little bit different, though not terribly. Um, but in your New Testament, whenever you see the word brothers, right, the Greek word for that is a Greek word, adelphoi. Right. And so the controversy comes because in a lot of places in the New Testament, it seems pretty obvious that the intention of the spirit, if not the writer, is to address the men and the women in the congregation. But the word brothers is used, even though in the Greek there is a word for sister. Not Adelphoi, but Adelphi. And in a couple of places in the New Testament, like one place in Matthew and, you know, like a very small handful of other places, you'll sometimes get um, a Greek phrase that's basically Adelphoi and Adelphi, right? Brother and sister. Um, and then there's other places where the context very clearly seems to be brother and sister, but only the word Adelphoi is used. And so there's kind of two schools of thought in how to translate that, right? Do you take Adelphoi brothers in contexts where it's brothers and sisters and say brothers and sisters, or do you still say brothers? And, you know, I, you know, there's 
really uh, compelling arguments on both sides. Um, I lean towards just keep it brother unless context clues let you know that brothers and sisters are being spoken of. Um, I think it's a pretty simple rule, but that's basically what's what was the topic of our conversation, right? Just for context sake. Um, I think, though, that the use of the word brother is actually intended to make the opposite point than the author's conclusion. She asks how so. So follow me here, yeah? We know that men and women had different levels of rights in the non-Christian Roman culture, correct? Like it's just a fact of history. Yeah, obviously. We also know that Paul loved his sisters in Christ from passages like Philippians 4, 2-3 and Romans 16, 1-5, where multiple women are called out by name as fellow workers that all of the churches of the Gentiles, along with Paul, thank and honor, correct? Uh, my friend Rebecca says, yes, but the blogs don't criticize the original scriptural author. She criticizes the translators for using gendered language where there wasn't originally. I say, well, their reasons for rendering it that way aren't really as arbitrary as she makes it sound. In the Greek, there is Adelphoi, which can be brothers or brothers and sisters. And there is a word Adelphi, which specifically means sisters only. The word, that word does show up in the New Testament, usually places that are listing familial relations specifically. That's not me defending a rendering of brother per se, so much as just explaining it. Alternatively, you could say that using brother when referring to the total body of believers is a subtle way of saying that women in their adoption into Christ are being adopted up to one, a position of equal standing to the men, and two, a position of equal right and access to the men, such that no man has more access to Christ than any woman. Her response? I mean, that's the same in Spanish, I get it, but when someone says niños, I can assume there are boys and girls, not just boys, because that word stands for both. Niñas is specifically girls. Niños can be boys only, but more often than not is both. And you could say that, but to say that would mean women are inherently unequal to men. I hold my, I hold my ground. No, it actually makes the opposite point that they're equal. She says, well, I disagree. You literally said, quote, up to a position of equal standing, unquote, implying women were below before. And secular women just stay below then? I say, I see your point now. Let me attempt to clarify. I'm talking about the cultural implications. Since the garden, women have always been equal to men in value, but culturally that truth is rarely expressed or lived out. Saying Adelphoi in a Roman cultural context when referring to male and female followers collectively could very well say to that culture women don't have a lesser status in Christ's kingdom, especially since they did also live it out according to the records of the era. Again, just offering up a way of seeing it that another woman pointed out to me some years ago. To which, surprisingly to some of you, her reply is, I am loving this conversation. I have to take my dog to the vet now, though, so be right back. I would love to continue after, though. At which point I say, sure, sure. You don't mind if I make this topic an episode of the podcast, do you? And she says, absolutely. I'd love to give it a listen, too. Right? And we and our conversation does continue after a short hiatus. But one thing I wanted to say, right, that to me is just as important 
as having these conversations in a truthful way, right? Jesus commanded his people to speak the truth in love. And I think in our current cultural climate, especially on social media, the in love part is forgotten. It's a point that I won't stress too much right now because I actually bring it up later towards the end of our conversation. And I like what I said there, so I don't want to steal the thunder from my past self. But just one of the things uh, as far as pulse checks go for this episode, right? Consider the way that you may have interacted with people on social media about matters of the faith, right? Sure, maybe your arguments were true, but did you say them in a way that your conscience can really say is love, right? You can say whatever you want out loud to the rest of us till the cows come home, but be honest. Are there times where after you let loose a tirade on social media that your conscience is pricked, that the Holy Spirit is saying to you that wasn't really in love, man? Like, what are you doing? What are you doing? And why do you justify treating people harshly just because they're wrong? Right? Why do you justify it? Right? Think about that. Consider that as we continue the transcript of what was, in a, what was a really awesome conversation. Uh, she says, all right, back. And I see what you mean, but I still think that translators have a duty to translate that rather than saying brothers, which in English means men, not men and women, at least not in modern English. To which I said, that aside, there is the deeper question of feminism that you brought up, to which some of you hawk-eyed, hawk-eared listeners may be asking, oh, see, he switched topics. He's trying to dodge the question. No, I wasn't trying to dodge anything, right? If I was trying to dodge anything, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't have been making this whole episode tackling it, right? So no, I'm not trying to dodge it. I wanted to actually make sure I got to her other questions. She did ask me another question besides just uh, the translator issue. And to be honest, um, when I'm in conversations like this, I do my best, uh, you know, to be prayed up and just kind of be praying, trying to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And I got the feeling that there is more to this than just the issue of just the intellectual issue of how do you render the Greek word Adelphoi correctly in English. So, you know, I, I switched gears a little bit just to do a little investigating. And so I said, that aside, there is the deeper question of feminism that you brought up. She said, which part? And I said, well, it's the more interesting question to me, at least. You asked how I felt about it in regards to Christianity, basically. She says, oh, yes. I guess, how does feminism fit into what you believe is scripture and the character of God? Also, what are your thoughts on gender in relation to God? Is God a he? I mean, I mean, really just coming down the barrel with, uh, with questions, ma'am. But hey, I'm, I'm here for it my response. Um, I took a screenshot of that question. That's a good focal point to plan the episode around. But like anything, but like anything, it starts with definitions for me. People define that word differently. I honestly believe that Christ's kingdom does not need feminism since all the doctrine uplifts women anyway. And is God a he? Well, God became a man in Christ. But I do get your question, I think. Since both genders are made equally in the image of God, he has to transcend both. That being said, 
when people diminish the fact that God, in his complex unity, refers to himself as father and son, I think it reveals a bigger problem in the individual. She says, well, there are also passages that refer to God as a loving mother, so why can't we also refer to God as mother and she? Hey, decent question, right? How would you respond? Interesting, right? Here's how I responded. I said, in our culture currently, it's seen as rude to not use a person's preferred gender pronouns. The only exception to that rule seems to be God. God clearly uses fatherly and masculine imagery in his self-description, but more and more people seem to desire God to identify as female. Jesus teaches his people to pray, starting with our Father who is in heaven. To refer to God as mother and she would require rewriting the entire Bible from start to finish in ways that may or may not have occurred to you. And she said, I know the whole Bible would have to be rewritten. That's part of my point. It's ingrained into it. Does God have a gender? Isn't God just God? Neither man nor woman or possibly all? I think thinking of God as a mother can help people who have bitter relationships with their fathers. I know it does for me. I said, okay, so the gender aspect of things seems less important now that you say that. And just side note, right? Like for me personally, it was when she said that, that I was like, aha, here we are. Not that I think that this is like the only root issue here, but, you know, I definitely feel like, you know, the Holy Spirit definitely wanted me to get to this in this conversation. And, you know, I thank God for the fact that I was able to, that I was able to get to this point and hopefully, um, you know, say something helpful in a way that's in a way that was loving and, you know, constructive. I mean, I, and I think, uh, I think in Christ I was able to do that. Um, and so I said, okay, so the gender aspect of things seems less important now that you say that, like, are you saying that if God is thought of as a father, that he therefore has to be understood at some level through the lens of what a subpar father did? Her reply, I think many people who have subpar father experiences have less context for the father passages, may not know what is normal or expected of fathers in daily life, and just have instinctual distrust or bitterness when fathers enter conversations. Passages about a father's love mean little to nothing to me, but passages about a mother's love give me context and positive emotional reaction. But besides this, the fact that there are passages of both what if God is gender fluid? That would make sense to me, seeing as he fills all roles, or androgynous, or even non-binary. He is, after all, not human or bound to human genders. My reply. Well, at that point, it seems that you're finding more comfort in labeling God with a modern gender fluid label, rather than finding comfort in the person of God, the way that God chose to reveal himself to us. It's one thing to say that God as spirit doesn't have gender the way us physical creatures do. It's another thing to extrapolate from that then that God is okay with us purposely choosing to edit the way he chose to reveal himself to us because of past hurts. Instead of taking our past hurts to him and saying, I don't know what a good father is and I'm apprehensive to say the least about a heavenly one, but if you're perfect, then show me the love of a perfect father. Because editing God's self-revelation for our own personal reasons is idolatry, as places like Romans chapter 1 lay out. She says, 
Well, gender fluidity has been around as long as humans have, and how are we supposed to trust that God prefers masculine to feminine when it was translated into English by old white dudes who only believe in two genders? Also, I don't get why God would have preferred pronouns or preferred bodies. To which I said, I, I took the humble route, and honestly, the honest route to me, and I said, there's dot 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 a lot there. Which would you have me comment to first? Um, and sometimes you have to do that, right? Another side note, right? You just got to be honest. I can't comment to, like you're bringing up multifaceted points, which is perfectly fine, but I'm finite and I only have the ability to speak to one issue competently at a time. So sometimes to help in conversation, you have to have the person you're talking to narrow it down of all the issues that you might have. What's your primary? Let me start there, right? She said, I read a passage today where God comes down to Abraham as three men. And I was like, hmm, but why men? And also, was it even men? Because I don't trust that the old white men in the freaking 12th century or whatever actually cared about women as people or wanted God to have anything to do with women. It is a lot, I know. This is a word vomit I've been mulling over for months, lol. And I said, there again, trust seems to be the deeper issue. Also, two of the three men in that passage were angels. The third one is the divine figure. Um, I also am in the middle of preparing a podcast episode on Sodom and Gomorrah. Side note, check the previous episode, right? Sodom and Gomorrah, um, the tragic tale of the second Eden, right? Give it a listen. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's pretty awesome. Um, but back to our conversation, their whole story in the Bible, not just the fire and brimstone bit. And also I'm pretty good with word vomits. You're perfectly welcome to let it fly. She said, no, oh, well, that's fortuitous timing. Um, and oh, I don't remember that being specified at which point she sent me a screenshot of the first few verses of, of, uh, chapter 18 in Genesis. She said, maybe my trust issues will drive me to learn Greek and Hebrew, and I'll read it myself. Um, me commenting on her screenshot of Genesis 18, I said, yeah, it's just a tad later than your screenshot. Verse 18 of chapter 18 says that the men went towards Sodom. Abram and one of the men stayed to talk. Chapter 19 of Genesis opens with, the two angels came to Sodom which is the reveal that those two quote-unquote men were definitely angels. She said, ah, well, why are angels men too? I said, well, don't lose the forest for the trees here. When you read of Sodom's attempted rape on those two angels, the text is very specific that the crowd of attackers was only male. So it's not like men unanimously are painted as heavenly righteous figures in the narrative. And she said, oh no, I wasn't thinking that. Men claim to be protectors of women, but who do they have to protect us from? Men. Ain't nobody got to remind me that not all men are godly. Fair enough, I said. Later prophets tell us that their culture was rather predatory towards the weak. Uh, she said, most cultures and people tend that way. Putting someone down is always easier than building yourself up. Again, no arguments here, I said. I'm all for people digging into the details. God's not threatened by what other people might call liberal-minded questions. These are important answers to find, after all. She said, maybe God always portrays himself masculine because humanity wouldn't respect him as a woman. You know, just half-joking. 
My reply was eh, half joking and half cynical. I understand the state of mind. And then she brings up her other, uh, her other point. It's just that religion is the perfect system for predators. And I'm tired of women being demeaned by old, eh, who want sex slaves and servants. I said, I would amend your statement. Organized religion isn't a problem. False religion is, and organized Christian systems can be false. That is one of the chief warnings that the Pharisees show us. She disagreed. Any organized religion is a system where predators will try to gain power to prey on vulnerable people. <laughs> and, you know, I plugged the podcast. I was like, you should, you, you should subscribe to the show. The next few topical episodes are in their own way going to dive deep into these things. She said... Yeah, but that doesn't mean I think every Christian or church official is a rapist or anything. I'm just saying the vulnerable nature of religion makes organized religion dangerous, and I'm definitely interested in the podcast. And I was, and I said to her, if you honestly thought that about every Christian, then I don't think you'd be talking to me this vulnerably. She said, definitely. And to which I said, which I respect, by the way. I see conversations like this as sacred. A person made in the image of God, sharing what's in their holy of holies, their center. You gotta treat that as at least sacred. Meredith and I have a whiteboard with future topics on it. So much to get to by year's end. To which she opened up and she said, I'm just filled with so much bitterness from the hateful Christianity that my family practices and that I grew up in. The sexism, the homophobia, the constant judgment and hypocrisy and bullying and the idea that questioning anything was a sin and a terrible, terrible deed. I hated it. And also, I love our discussions and disagreements. It's so refreshing to have civil but heated discussions where we're both having a good time and I'm not struggling with crippling anxiety. And my reply to that was, the joy of proving myself right about something is a distant second place to the joys of compassion, though I also will never compromise what's true. I refuse to prove a point correct at the expense of the person asking me the question. But it also helps that I'm just not heated. <laughs> I love doing this, helping someone see the beauty and life and the truth. Yeah, nothing beats it for me. Um... You know, and that's pretty, that was pretty much the conversation. There were a few other pleasantries exchanged, but, you know, I hope, uh, like I said, well, in the next half after the intermission, I'll deal with some of the specific questions that she raised, uh, open up, open up some scripture and hopefully get some answers that we can all chew on and be edified from and see God and Christ more clearly. But, you know, in these last couple of minutes, I just wanted to say, look, not every conversation, just going to be honest, right? Not every conversation goes that smoothly. Not every, con not every conversation remains, you know, unheated, right? You're going to have difficult conversations with people that are resistant to the gospel of the kingdom. You're going to be painted as bigoted and backwards and all sorts of stuff. You will have those moments, right? But Sometimes I think what can happen is we can get paranoid and think that every single conversation is going to be that. And so we go in with sword drawn and shield up when instead we should go in with peace on our lips, right? Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. And we are the ones that preach the gospel of peace to a lost and dying world, a lost and confused church sometimes that needs help, that needs salvation. 
right? And so go out and be peaceful, right? If it's in your power, be peaceful, right? As much as it is in your power, says Paul, be peaceful. We forget that. We forget that. Sometimes conversations that didn't have to become inflammatory become inflamed because we are the ones that inflame them. Unnecessary insults, unnecessary cheap shots, unnecessary low blows from people that claim to have the love of God for a lost and dying world in their hearts. I've seen it. I've seen so much of it. And I feel like I've seen so much of it since um, you know, since Trump came into office, I feel like that brought a lot of that flesh and a lot of that carnality out of the church at large in this nation. And I'm saying, look, man, repent, because what Jesus said is that the harvest is ripe, but the workers are few. Right. And I think a lot of us workers get distracted with the pleasure of proving ourselves right and forget compassion and we forget the mercy of God in showing a sinner and showing a confused Christian the beauty of Jesus Christ and how that is so much more fun, so much more satisfying than being able to walk away saying, I won an argument, but being able to walk away saying, I won a brother or sister for the kingdom, right? So I'll have a short intermission and then we'll get into some of the specific questions that uh, my friend Rebecca raised in that conversation. Be right back. Luke chapter 1, verse 3. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Have you ever considered the implications, Christian? like at all, that the Gospel of Luke, the entire Gospel of Luke, was written for the purposes of edifying and answering the questions of one guy. One guy who, you know, in this text, not even sure is a Christian, right? Like he was taught it. Did he hold to it? We don't know. But Luke went through the effort of tracking down eyewitnesses who had seen Jesus, who had heard Jesus, who knew the teachings of Jesus, who saw and ate with Jesus, who saw him preach, who saw the miracles that he did. He went around the ancient world on his own personal journey to track down all of these eyewitnesses and record their testimony so that his friend or brother in the faith, Theophilus, could have certainty concerning the things you have been taught right? And look at what God has done with the efforts of this physician, right? Not only has it strengthened the faith of Theophilus, but it has strengthened the faith of Christians for thousands of years to come and for thousands of years since and thousands of years to come until Christ comes back, right? Never underestimate the impact of answering even one question from somebody who has doubts, right? Never underestimate right? The return on investment of the work that you do to answer questions from critics, from curious people, from other believers in the church, right? Never settle for anything less than the truth. Do the work, do the research. If you don't know, say you don't know and promise to get back to them with something solid, right? Right? Let's follow the example of our spiritual forefathers. Let's do what Luke did, right? Let's do what Luke did so we can answer questions 
from the Theophiluses in our lives, right? And now, back to the show. All right, welcome back to the Foreign Saints podcast, continuing the pulse check for those of us that die daily, talking about the gender identity of God and answering the questions from a friend, a friend of mine named Rebecca. So we get into one of the first specific questions uh, raised um, from the from the conversation. So, um, Rebecca, if you're listening, hopefully you are. Um, what I went, what what I went, what I did was I went back to our conversation pretty painstakingly in my little notebook here, and I wrote down, um, you know, all of the specific questions that you raised. Um, I think one or two I might not have written down, but I think that's because. I think some of the questions were kind of restated a couple of times, but I did my best to cover all of what seemed to be the main uh, questions, the main like question questions that you raised. So um, starting with the first one, and I know I answered some of it in our conversation, but you know, some of them I didn't answer, you know, because I was trying to stay, you know, on topic and not get too derailed. So again, that's one of the benefits of, one of the benefits of me just having a podcast right as i have the benefit of being able to kind of circle back around and hit some of the questions that i left hanging before but um question one um you ask me how does feminism fit into what you believe is scripture and the character of god Man, how does feminism fit into what I believe is scripture and the character of God? I remember that what I had said to you is that, you know, I just don't believe that Christ's kingdom needs feminism because the doctrine of Jesus Christ, the doctrine of Christianity, like how do you uplift women more than Jesus does through the cross, through the gospel, through his shed blood? Um, but I didn't really take the time to like unpack what I meant by that because you know, on social media platforms where you type your answer instead of speak it, you're pretty constrained, um, you know, just because you can speak and process the spoken word a lot faster than you can type word or read it. So, you know, what do I mean when I say that I don't believe that Christ's kingdom needs feminism is because everything that feminism says, healthy feminism, right? Because you know, when I was I was doing a study on just for personal reasons on the history of abortion in America, at least, and I unexpectedly uh, ended up trawling through a lot of feminism's cultural history in America, specifically going back to you know second and third wave feminism and even first wave feminism back in the you know mid to late 1800s, and it's just interesting to see how just how different you know, even first wave feminism is from third and, you know, what we're entering into now, uh, which can be a little bit difficult to even call feminism, what with the trans movement coming in and having their say, but, you know, anything that healthy feminism has to say about women, the Bible already does. So really for me, it's like, when a feminist when a feminist says something true about women right when a feminist is like you know men are not superior to women women are not inferior to men i'm like yes and amen you know for me because the bible tells me so right like 
Eve was created from Adam as his opposite that corresponded to him. That's even the language in the Hebrew, right? Adam, I'll make for you an easer, a helper that is your opposite, but corresponds to you, right? Taken and made literally from your own flesh. I just like, I don't see how someone could read the Genesis account properly, like actually paying attention to the whole story, right? Like it's one, like it's, I mean, I can see how someone could, and it would be by bringing in your own notions of superiority and pushing that on the text. But if you're just reading Genesis and letting the story speak to you from the text, instead of you pushing what you want onto the text, dude, woman, like Eve was literally made from Adam's flesh. How could she be inferior logically? It doesn't make any sense doesn't make any sense. You take what Paul said about marriage in Ephesians, right? And people love quoting that. It's like, well, it says women submit, uh, not women. It says wives uh, submit to your husbands as, you know, as the church uh, does to Christ. I'm like, yes, it does say that. It also tells husbands to love your wives as Christ did the church because you're one body with her and no man ever hated his own flesh. Paul literally bringing you know that's how he speaks of the marriage covenant like for the husband to abuse his wife like you're that's self-hatred dude that's self-hatred because y'all are in a one flesh union like the first people to report on the resurrection of jesus were women mary a woman literally carried the life of god in her womb for nine months gave birth to him you know what I mean? Cared for him, fed him, changed his diaper, taught him how to walk, taught him how to eat, taught him the Hebrew alphabet, taught him how to re like, what are, how, <laughs> like, like if all you have is the scripture, how do you come away thinking that women are in fear? I, I just don't see it. I just don't see it. And yeah, people could bring up the old Testament law and all that stuff. And I mean, old Testament law would be I mean, honestly, another episode, like if I was going to answer that now, I wouldn't be able to answer the other questions that you brought up. But suffice to say, if you actually get in, get into the Old Testament law, it's like, dude, it's an elevation of women from the status where they were at before. And Jesus lets us know in Matthew 19, a very strong indication. Um, I mean, it's not really a strong indication. It's just basic doctrine that the law was always supposed to be temporary. So the ethic that Jesus brings to us is all was always God's actual heart, like the fullness of God's intention. Paul tells us the law was just a schoolmaster to lead you to Christ, right? So it just it feels weird to hearken back to a law that God said even during the days of the old covenant itself was temporary and would be replaced by something new and better because of the weaknesses of the people. Um, there are some negative aspects to feminism sometimes too, where, you know, at that point they're just contradicting, um, not really contradicting, just coming against God. You know, there's in, in modern feminism, there can be a lot of just hatred and bitterness towards men, um, you know, because of history, because of things that have happened in their own life. I get it. You know what I mean? Like I'll use it, excuse me, like I'll use an analogy here, right? Like 
you know, in reference to the Adelphoi thing that really started all this, right? Um, sometimes, at least for me, that seems to indicate, like, if you're offended at the use of brother over brothers and sisters, it seems weird to fixate on that in the middle of a passage that's talking all sorts of goodness about women, right? Like, like, it seems really weird to fixate on the way someone said something when the substance of what they said was life and peace, right? Like, it, it, it smacks a little bit of being perhaps, you know, overly sensitized to the issue due to trauma. Um, you know, one example for me, uh, just as an African-American, right, like reading in the reading in the last book of the Bible in the Revelation. I remember when I was younger in the faith and it would describe Jesus as, you know, it would describe Jesus as, um, well, not Jesus, but some things were described as white. I'm trying to remember where was the passage. Was it Revelation? Maybe Philippians? Um, oh, yeah, yeah, no, no. I think it would think it was Corinthians, actually, the judgment seat of Christ, right? Describing the judgment seat as, you know, a great white throne, right? And I remember when I was younger in the faith, that description actually would kind of jostle me a bit, not because there is anything wrong in the description, but just because the, you know, the phrase, the great white throne, right? It, it, it conjured up images to me of, or at least I reacted. I don't think, I mean, the scripture wasn't really conjuring those images, but because of cultural baggage I was bringing into the text, I was thinking of all sorts of white supremacy and oh, see it's the great white throne you know why can't it be a great black throne you know what i mean just just reacting in all sorts of ways that aren't warranted from the text itself and i think every single person has the capacity to do that at certain levels because every single one of us has got some level of trauma in our life from something some of us more trauma than others, but we all have baggage that we can bring to the text. And it's just, it's unfair to the text and it cheats us. Like, like, it, like we're cheating ourselves of what God's trying to say to us when we force our cultural baggage onto texts of scripture that aren't trying to comment on it one way or the other, but are saying something totally different. Um, I think that it kind of got kind of went far afield from your from your question, but by and large, you know, how does feminism fit into what I believe is scripture and the character of God? Um, you know, like I said, depending on how you define feminism, I don't think it fits, and depending on how you define feminism, I think it's unnecessary. Like Hagar was one of the first people that one of the first, not the first, but one of the first people, one of the only people in human history to have seen the you know, the pre-incarnate Christ, right? The angel of the Lord appeared to Hagar. And who's Hagar? But a servant of one of the patriarchs and matriarchs, right? It's not like Sarah didn't do Hagar dirty as well, but, you know, she was a woman, you know, in a difficult position, um, you know, sent away with child and not with really any resources to her name ready to abandon the life of the child, not because she wanted her child to die, but because she couldn't bear the thought of watching her kids starve slowly to death in the wilderness. And who appears to her but the angel of the Lord? And if you understand your Bible, you understand that the angel of the Lord is uh, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. So 
literally Jesus took the time to appear before being, you know, properly incarnated through Mary to a single mom that was just, uh, you know, that was just sent out, you know, um, you know, as a, as a consequence of, of, of a man's sin. Right. And God provides for like, like I can go story after story of God meeting women in their distress and being their solution and being the answer to the problem and elevating them and being the strength that allows them to persevere. I like it's countless stories that it feels like in scripture and in church history. So, you know, like, like you're not going to find a feminist that cares more about women than the God that created femininity, you know, and to that, you know, I move on to, Question 1A, I call it, because I think these first three questions are kind of all related. Um, but what are my thoughts on gender in relation to God? Is God a he? Man, man, gender in relation. I guess it's not, it's not something I think about. You know what I mean? So that's part of the reason why, besides the move, that it took me a while to do this, because it's not one of those issues that tends to preoccupy my mind. Um, but as far as gender in relation to God... Like I said, you know, theologically, right? God is spirit. Like gender is usually, for the most part, a physical description. Um, though I think there are, uh, though I think there are characteristics as, of the soul as far as that goes. Um, but God refers to Himself as a He, and the point that I was making in our conversation is just you can't downplay that. I definitely feel like people that are on the wave of you know, maybe God's gender fluid, you know, you can identify, you know, you can call God a, a mother, a mom, a she, and, you know, and God would be totally fine with it. I feel like are highly downplaying the fact that God never actually does call himself anything other than a he, which brings me to, you know, the, the third question here, one B you said there are passages that refer to God as a loving mother. So why can't we also refer to God as mother and she? Well, quite frankly, because I would challenge people's interpretation of those passages. Like, there aren't many, technically, uh, in Scripture. But when you say that refer to God as a loving mother, so you're saying there are passages of Scripture that actually call God a loving mother. And, you know, I did some Google searches. I know some, but I wanted to see. So I went, actually went back to that website, the Junia Project, found some other articles here. I actually have them, I actually had them pulled up on my phone just for this. Yeah, on that same website, Junia Project, um, from an article titled Biblical Maternal Images for God by Xiao Chong, uh, published May 7th, 2016. Um, he brings up a couple of verses here, um, brings up a handful, but he says that his favorite, that last verse is one of my favorite verses, um, Isaiah 49, 15, uh, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born though she may forget, I, God will not forget you. Isaiah 49 chapter 15. And again, for those of you listening, um, you know, open your Bible up, open your phone up as you're listening and turn there. Um, so we can all look at this together. Isaiah chapter 49, 
verse 15. And there we are, right? And so what the author says concerning this verse is that it's one of my favorite verses for use in the assurance of forgiveness in a worship service. I like it for its compassionate and faithful portrayal of God, but also because it's one of the few feminine images of God that I can use in a service. It reminds the congregation that God is beyond gender. Hold that in your mind. The gender pronouns are simply metaphors to help us understand God who is always beyond our full understanding. Okay, all right. <clears throat> Whew. Hear his claim, right? He says that Isaiah 49, 15 reminds the congregation that God is beyond gender. And these are the these are the issues that I have from an exegetical perspective, right? When you come to Isaiah 49, 15, this is what it says. Can a, I'm reading out of the ESV, just full disclosure, right? Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you, right? So is that verse saying that, how did you word, is that verse saying that God is a loving mother? Is it referring to God as a loving mother, even spiritually, right? That God is spiritually, is that what it's saying? Or is it using an attribute of human mothers and saying this relates to God's attitude and heart towards his people? They are different, right? The full context, I would say, starts all the way back in verse 8 and goes all the way to the end of the chapter, right? Thus says the Lord in verse 8 of Isaiah 49, um, in a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I've helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, right? The, the, what God is answering there is the idea that that Israel, that his people is abandoned by him, right? That he's just left them to rot in judgment under oppression um, from other nations. And the meditation ends at the end of the chapter. Um, Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your savior and your redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. The point of the passage isn't about the gender identity of God. It's about God's commitment to rescuing his people. And so, you know, for this author to say that he likes to use this verse because it reminds the congregation that God is beyond gender, that's not a thought that's anywhere in the mind of the passage. And so, like, I don't mind, I don't mind necessarily finding secondary, tertiary applications for passages, but they have to be at least somehow related to the primary point of the passage. And that's one of my biggest issues with the Junia project as a website is as I was, as I was going through this website, it seemed that every issue was viewed through the lens of gender, which again is actually something I'm not necessarily mad at, right? Everyone in the kingdom has a, um, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Has a ministry, right? Like, take my podcast, right? You could say, well, Kari, you view everything through the lens of the verse of the persecuted church. 
And I'm like, well, I don't know if I'd necessarily say that, but I can see how looking at my content, you could definitely come to that conclusion, right? Right? I don't mind if someone's ministry is specifically to gender-related issues. It's very needed in our culture, right? But when you're talking about exegeting the text, that is some that is something that like transcends anyone's ministry, right? Like the text either says something or it doesn't. And the Holy Spirit can apply that to a believer in a variety of ways. But it's just wrong to say that this passage has anything to do with the gender, that it speaks one way or the other towards it. And I think I could say the same for any other major passages that people bring. Like when people talk about Jesus weeping for Jerusalem, saying, yeah, the same way a mother hen gathers his chicks is how I would have gathered you. And I'm like, you know, but now because you reject me, because you didn't recognize the time of your visitation, of God visiting you, then you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Allah, Psalm 118, verse 26, right? That passage isn't about the gender identity of God. It's about revealing God's heart towards his people that, that he came, right? That God came as a man in Jesus Christ to redeem his people, to save his people. That was what he wanted to do. But because of their rejection of him, now the only thing left for his people is destruction at the hands of Rome. And they weren't going to see him again until far flung in the future. Right. And that's the timeline we're walking down now. But to bring up that passage of Jesus weeping for Jerusalem and saying, yeah, I would have I would have I wanted to gather you under my wings and saying that that is Jesus commenting on the gender identity of God is to miss the point and purpose of the passage and replace it with our own. And secondly, um, you know, big point here, uh, everybody turn if you can or want to, <laughs> um, uh, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, verses 5 to 8. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. And honestly, you guys might you guys might get there before me, so you can hear the pages turning. There we go. All right, so the argument from these cats is because God is using uh, female traits or feminine-related traits as a way of helping people understand him and his heart, that must be a comment on his gender identity. I bring you to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul speaking, uh, starting in verse... Uh, Five. I'll say, actually, no, we'll start in, yeah, we'll start in verse five. Paul writing to the Thessalonian church says, we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Paul is saying, Paul, right? So-called misogynistic Paul, right? Not that Rebecca called Paul misogynistic, but people tend to, right? So-called misogynistic Paul is saying that he and the other apostles that were with him in Thessalonica with that church, with those believers, were like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. That's how Paul describes how they were with them. Is that Paul commenting on his gender fluidity or lack thereof? No. 
No, Paul's giving a metaphor, as the author of the Junia Project would say, so that people can more clearly understand the tenderness and the love that he had towards the Thessalonican believers. But it's not a statement of Paul saying that, in that he feels gender fluid, that he felt gender fluidity in Thessalonica with that church. Right? Like, like this is pretty simple. We should get this, but it can be difficult to see when we're bringing our baggage to the text, right? And um, I'm actually kind of running out of time here. Um, you know, I got a little over five minutes, so I'll come to the end here because um, it kind of answers your uh, your other question here too. Um, one of, your, one of your questions was, how are we supposed to trust that God prefers masculine to feminine when it was translated into English by old white dudes who only believe in two genders? Um, I mean, I can defuse this whole question by saying that God doesn't prefer masculine to feminine, right? Like that is something I could say, but I'll hold off on that and just ask you, maybe reach out to me and say, hey, what do you, you know, I'm, I'm asking, like, I'm curious, what do you mean when you say God prefers masculine? to feminine. But what I do want to spend the last five minutes on here is your claim towards the end of our conversation that organized religion is the perfect system for predators, right? I think the first verse I just said here from first Thessalonians starts to answer that, right? Like if that's how Paul was among them, right? Not coming with words of flattery, not with a pretext of greed, or they didn't seek glory from the people, right? Like, like, how how does that lend itself to predation right um mark chapter 10 i mean this is just this is just straight up jesus speaking right and i always uh this is one of those verses that i always default to whenever you know church scandals and things come up and people want to talk about oh the church has all these issues right what does jesus say Jesus talking to his disciples when they were getting in their own heads with ego, he deflated their egos and said, you know, oh, uh, verse address. This is Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 42. Then Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, right, of the non-Jews, of, you know, non-faith-filled people, lorded over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. And we know that's true, right? Look at human history. People get power, they go crazy. They become tyrants. They lord it over their subjects, right? They, they, they rip all the excess from their people and impoverish the society to make themselves fat and rich. We see it all the time in human history. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what happens in the world. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Right? That's our example. Right? I come forward into Acts 20. I know I'm kind of throwing a lot of scripture at you, but I'm just trying to give, trying to bring a lot of this out to make a foundation so I can make the larger point. I'm not going to have time to read it all, right? But when you get a chance, go to Acts 20 and read from verses 17 on down to the very end of the chapter, right? And I want you to ask yourself a question when you read that out of Acts, right? 
Acts chapter 20, verses 17 to the end, right? If all the leaders of the church followed the pattern that Paul talked about in, in that section of Acts, where's the predatory behavior have room to come in, right? But last and definitely not least is my biggest issue, 1 Corinthians 5, Paul saying in verse 12, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Paul is literally saying, hey, it is your job, Christians, to judge those within the church. Right? Read the pastoral epistles of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. Right? Read those letters. Titus. Right? See what Paul says. Right? People's character has to matter in the leaders that you pick. And if their character isn't there, don't give them positions of power within the church. Right? Like, there's your pattern for organized religion. The reason that child predators and, you know, lady molesters get into positions of power is because, for the most part, people didn't want to listen to the way that God organized Christianity to work through the writings of Paul. Well, I don't want to get rid of him. That would be difficult. That would be scandalous. That would be shameful. Yeah, but the word of God says to get rid of this guy because his character isn't there. Right. And if you practice those things, the sheep would not be getting ripped apart by wolves in sheep's clothing. Right. Like I said, there's so much more I could say on this, but I'm running out of time, like actual 30 seconds left. So all I got to say now is just I hope that, you know, hope that this was a uh, beneficial, you know what I mean? Chew up the meat, spit out the bones. Um, and to anyone else who is listening, I hope that you gain something from this, too. Uh, speak the truth and love to those outside, right? Be Jesus to somebody this week in word and in deed, right? Get in the word, be at the feet of the cross, at the feet of the master. Until then, go in peace, serve him. Catch you next time.